If you have primary school-aged kids or grandkids, make sure Vision Kids is part of their daily routine. Vision Kids! Vision Kids is a 24-7 online radio stream featuring the ever-popular Adventures in Odyssey. Hi, this is Chris. Welcome to Adventures in Odyssey. Plus other world-class radio dramas, kids' music and friendly voices. G'day, Vision Kids. Vision Kids is streaming now in the Vision app and online at visionkids.org.au. You can also tell your smart speakers to play Vision Kids Radio. If you don't already have the Vision app on your phone or tablet, you can download it for free when you search Vision Christian Media in your app store. Vision Kids. Another way we're helping the whole family look to God daily. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. What is God really like? A powerful God who becomes a suffering servant to compel you into relationship through self-sacrifice. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. I'm glad you've joined me again. My name is Bill. Last time, Pastor Jeff started a message in a new series, the Awake series. He's trying to help us wake up to the reality of God, life and the universe and to trust or take a leap even when it's scary. Last time we ended with Pastor Jeff talking about what God is really like, what God expects from us as His people to be a light, to propel people towards Him by living distinct lives. And now Pastor Jeff will continue with What Does God Promise? We're in Mark chapter 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles again, let's get into the message now here on Today with Jeff Vines. Now, hold on a second. Wait, this is not the whole story about us, is it? This is not indicative of all the houses of worship, just sometimes, unfortunately, those in the media. But think about it. Remember what Billy Graham said to Larry King when Larry King asked him about all the preachers who had fallen? And Billy Graham says, you know, 10,000 planes take off and land every day. You'll never hear their stories, but when one crashes, that's the one you hear about. Think of Billy Graham, a life above reproach. My goodness. Think of Rick Warren right here in Southern California. I don't know anyone who represents the Christian faith any better, who has lived an above reproach life. My friend, Danny Gugliomucci in Australia, I've gotten to know him over the years, an amazing man of God who's done amazing work. Matt Chandler, some of you young people will be familiar with him, an amazing man of God. Chuck Swindoll in his 80s, my daughter tells me she would still rather listen to him than me. Quite frankly, I would rather listen to him than me. So we've got things in common there. And my question is, if duplicity disproves the gospel, does consistency show its legitimacy? Because if you want duplicity, you can find it. But if you want consistency, you can find that too. What is God really like? A powerful God who becomes a suffering servant to compel you into relationship through self-sacrifice. What does God expect from his people to be a light unto the Gentiles? to compel people toward God by their distinct lives to practice what they preach, 
Quickly, third, what does God promise? Now, I want you to stay with me here because the last point is very short. But this is that one overarching truth that the passage teaches, okay? Because when Jesus cleanses the temple, do you know what he's really doing? He's throwing out the old sacrificial system and he's saying to the people, you can go directly to God now. The time is coming, you'll go directly to God. You don't need the temple. You don't need the Holy of Holies. And of course, the religious leaders are shocked and they want to kill him because there's good money made in the temple. They're also shocked, those, even those who would be more honest, because they know the history of the temple, which started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary, right? It's a sanctuary because it's where the presence of God dwelled. It was called paradise because the presence of God in full was there. It was the place of shalom, ultimate peace, but ultimate, it means so much more than that, by the way. Shalom is a word we could do an entire sermon series Ultimately, it is human flourishing. It's where humanity flourishes in the presence, the shalom of God. No death, no decay, no imperfection. The story, though, of the temple is that when we ran away from God and started to pursue other things, which made no sense at all because those things are temporary, we were kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve, though, as they're leaving the garden, do you know the story in Genesis 3? As they're leaving the garden, they turn around and look, and what do they find? What do they see as they're leaving the garden? they see a flashing sword going back and forth under which no one could pass. A swift, flaming sword. Now, the Jews understood the uh, the symbolism or the metaphor here. They understood that once you lock God out of any culture or society, the next thing that's going to happen is death and conflict. Because if you're not right with God, you're not going to be right with each other. But the second thing they understood, not only does it represent the conflict that arises when we leave the sanctuary, It also represents the reality that God desperately wants us back into the sanctuary, but you can't go back unless you go under the sword. You say, see, that's why I don't like this Christianity stuff. Look at that. Come on, man. If God really wanted us back, what's he going to do? Chop our heads off? Well, think about it just for a second. Let's say, young women, somebody rapes you. Or let's say, older men, you lost all your savings in the Ponzi scheme. Or a drunk driver, middle-aged men, Drunk one Saturday night, drives his car, strikes your wife and her car kills her. You show up at the court date and you're ready for the trial to begin. And the defendant says to the judge, hey, judge, before we start this, I just want to say I'm sorry. And the judge says, oh, well, if you're sorry, case dismissed. That's not justice. That's injustice. Something more than I'm sorry has to be done here. There's got to be some kind of costly payment, and you know that, or that's a travesty of justice. The flaming swords at the edge of the garden, from the very beginning, God is trying to communicate to us. One, he has a heart for us. He wants us back in the sanctuary. He doesn't want us to go under the sword, but somebody has to. Otherwise, there's no sense of justice in this world. Somebody must go under the sword, but my goodness, who can survive the sword? Now, the Jews in the temple... They know this story. They know about the sword. And even though God establishes the temple as a kind of temporary fix, sacrifice, your sins will be forgiven at least until the next time you sin and the wrath of God is turned away. They also know that even in the temple, there's this this thick veil so that no one can really go into the Holy of Holies. So you really can't go back fully into the sanctuary, even though the temple has been established. And only time you could go in 
is one time a year during Yom Kippur in which a priest would go in, but even then he had to take a sacrifice with him because there's no going back into the presence of God without going under the sword. In Jesus, God reveals how much he loves you, how valuable you really are to him, and how he desperately wants to give you shalom. Now go back. Why did John see the lamb instead of the lion on the throne in Revelation 5? And it's because he, Jesus, was the greatest kingly triumph in the history of the cosmos. By sacrificing himself, he goes under the sword so you never have to. And you're welcome back into the sanctuary because of what he did for you. No matter how bad you think you are, you can walk into the Holy of Holies. Man, who in, who in this room doesn't need more peace, more shalom, more human flourishing? But Jesus doesn't go under the sword so that you could consider dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. He did it to convince you of the kind of God he really is. He rides in on the donkey, infinite power, infinite accessibility, and then he goes under the sword so that you would know no matter how bad you think you are, you can come back into the sanctuary and experience human flourishing in the midst of this crazy, broken world. Why is that important? Well, it brings us to the last question and the end of the sermon, the fake end of the sermon. <laughs> How does this relate what God promised? Oh man, this is so valuable. You know, it's, it's time like these that I wish I was, I don't know. I, it's just impossible for any man, woman, scholar to communicate effectively the depth of what you're about to hear. You do the best you can. And you pray for the spirit of God to do the work. The Bible says, and especially those of you who are young trying to figure out your life, can, can you listen just for you know, like five minutes in this part and then, I, then we will go to the end. The Bible says that in the presence of God, everything in this world, even the trees are sleeping. The rocks too. The Bible says they're shadows of what they could be in the presence of God, their creator, in full. But the Bible says that when the presence of God comes, brought by Jesus, and when it covers the world, it tells us the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. That they're going to be so alive with the presence of God that they'll be able to do what they've always wanted to do. Now, if that's true of them, what does that say about you? If you put seeds into a pot of soil and place them in the dark, what happens? Well, they sort of sleep, right? They can't reach their full potentiality. But if you bring them out into the presence of the sun, they explode with all their potentiality. That should be earth-shattering to you because it means that if you're willing to enter into the sanctuary, if you're willing to go back in, you will achieve your full potential. You will discover who you really are and what you were made to be, and you will experience shalom, total human flourishing. And that's the one window you have to open or you're going to live your life, young people, with a sense of quiet desperation. Those who have opened the window have lived such compelling lives. John Wesley, it's said that millions, if not tens of millions, came to Christ through his ministry. I don't know if you know this about Wesley, though. He was not very physically impressive. He was called a tiny man with a big vision. I don't know if that's how I'd want people to describe me. But if you went into Wesley's house, adjacent to his bedroom was a prayer closet. Two hours every morning before he started his day, 
He spent time in prayer, always with an open Bible, waiting to hear a word from the Lord. And that's why he became known as the powerhouse of Methodism. King David told us that. He knew that if you dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that surely goodness and mercy will follow you. Can I tell you something before I close this out? In my ministry, the advantage of getting older is I have, I have discovered two commonalities in people who are experiencing human flourishing. Yeah, I couldn't have said this in my 20s and 30s. Two commonalities. Now, this would be worth your time to write down. This is 35, 6, 7, I don't know how many years of ministry here. And I've noticed two simple commonalities on young people who are flourishing in whatever they're doing in their jobs, in older people who are flourishing, still using the best of what they have for the kingdom, in middle-aged men and women. This, these are the two commonalities. Number one, they consistently open the word of God and ask him to speak. Now, this is not magic. You know, one of my favorite stories is when I taught, and I can't even remember who told it now, so it might be a little plagiarism here, but I can't remember. I've told it for so long. But where they're having a meeting in church and everybody stands up and says, just open your Bible and tell us your life verse. And somebody opens the Bible and says, Judas went out and hanged himself. Of course, they said, that can't be it. So they turned the page and they found, therefore, go out and do likewise. <laughs> this is not magic. This is not, let me you know, see what happens. No, this requires intentionality. It's Bible reading with a good commentary and a life application Bible. And somebody like Chris T. Green, a great devotionalist that I've mentioned before, reading the Psalms and the Proverbs and the book of John and the book of Romans. You constantly open the word of God. You read it in the morning, even if it's a short passage, and you say, God, speak to me today. That's a commonality of people who are experiencing human flourishing. They're not perfect people. They're not even righteous, pragmatically speaking. But they go before God regularly. They always are entering the sanctuary. Second practice is that they practice the presence of God every day. What does that mean? Well, they're in their car listening to worship music. Now, not all the time. Don't misunderstand. I mean, I love the Eagles and I love Rush and the Doobie Brothers. Yes, I'm making my confession. <laughs> but at certain times during the day, I've got my new favorite worship leader, Joshua Aaron, who comes out of Israel. So, they meditate. They have a lunchtime devotion where they think about what they read that morning and see if God has spoken to them. And these kind of people, even in good and bad circumstances, they're always asking the question, God, what are you saying to me? Those are the two simple commonalities of people who are experiencing human flourishing. Fourth and finally, what does God empower his people in his people? Now, this is my favorite part of this section because Jesus seems to have a real problem with fig trees. So in verse 12 of Mark 11, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Okay. So what did Jesus expect to find? Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. <laughs> So what's Jesus doing? So I go over to a fig tree wanting fruit when I know it's not the season for fruit. And I get all angry and I just curse the fig tree. But if you look at it, and by the way, it, it took a lot of reading to discover this. You know, sometimes you can learn a lot from Messianic Jews and their understanding of imagery. A Messianic Jew is someone who's been converted to Christianity who now is seeing the Bible through the light of all Old and New Testament, Okay. If you look closely, Jesus is not really doing anything to the fig tree. 
He's illustrating for the disciples a very important point. He's not really dealing with a fig tree. He's really dealing with you and me. In Israel, there are two kinds of fruit that appear on the fig tree. So if you see the leaves, even though the fruit hasn't come in yet, once you see the leaves on a fig tree, they produce these little nodules. And those nodules are delicious. And travelers would often go and pick those little nodules off and have them as a little delicacy. Jesus goes over to the fig tree. If you see the leaves, but there's no nodules, it means the tree is diseased and dying inside. Jesus didn't need to curse the fig tree. He made a statement of what had already happened to the fig tree, that it looked good on the outside, but it was dying on the inside. Now you think about this. This happens in the same vein of the ride into Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, going to the temple and finding it busy, cursing the fig tree, going back to the temple. Jesus is giving a little parable about hollow religiosity. He is essentially saying, Jesus is about to walk into this place where it's religiously busy, filled with transactions. There are so many things happening, so much going on, but nobody's meeting God. Jesus is saying, you say, you know, I I like where you're going, pastor, but that first part I can't follow. Well, I hope to bring it all into completion now. Jesus is saying, if the presence of God is really in your life, when I see the leaves from afar and I get closer to you, I'm going to see the nodules. Proof that you're living on the inside. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God can shake mountains. And if that's true, I want more than busyness and activity in your life. There should be more to your life than saying, I went to this study, I read the Bible, I volunteered here or there. Are you changing in character? Is it clear that you are defeating this addiction? Is it clear that you're becoming less anxious, less depressed, less angry, less addicted? Not perfect now. We all have our little things that we struggle with, little demons. We have them, all of us. I do, you do. But are we making progress? Are we less arrogant, more sacrificial, more generous, more trusting, more peaceful, joyful? Is there a greater measure of self-control? Has there been a radical transformation in your life that has gone past religiosity? Now, here's the connection to that first part of the story. The paradoxical character of Jesus, combining traits that ordinarily you would never see in the same person, combined in Jesus, will now be reproduced in you. And that's how you know the life of Jesus Christ is truly in you. When people approach you, when they see the leaves from a distance and the nodules are present when they arrive. I want you to wake up as we begin this series. And don't miss next week, man. Next week, we're going to talk about a place called, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, just read Matthew 24 and Mark 15 this week as we talk about the end of all things. What is God really like? He's a powerful God who becomes a suffering servant to compel you into relationship through self-sacrifice. What does God expect from his people? To be a light unto the Gentiles to compel people toward God by distinct living, to practice what you preach. What does God promise? To provide a way back into the sanctuary by giving us his one and only son as a sacrifice to go under the sword, to meet the requirements of God's justice and holiness on our behalf so that through relationship and intimacy, you and I might have human flourishing. 
What does God empower his people to do? Transformational life change. Hey, can I ask you, isn't it time that you go through the window, man? (laughs) I know it's confusing on the other side. It's the only way. It is the only way to life. Don't be scared of what might happen on the other side. Trust him. Around here, we call it RSVPE. God's given you an invitation. Repent. Acknowledge that you've gone your own way and probably suffering because of it, no matter how hard you try. Say you're sorry. God, I'm sorry that I didn't pursue you above and beyond all things. And I feel a little lost. Verbalize your trust, but I know Jesus went under the sword for me, so I'm welcome back in the sanctuary. God, pull me back into the sanctuary. And P, plunge your past. Die to your old way. Be resurrected to a new. If you do those things, the Bible tells you, free access for the rest of your life into the sanctuary of the living God. And no matter how bad you think you are, he's there with open arms. Folks, do you know right now it's a little bit natural to feel distant from God? Did you know that? Because some things have been removed from you. Your church body, your life groups, your community. Do you know it's natural? Because those things are directly tied with the feeling of your closeness to God. Not the objective truth, but the feeling. Lean into the sanctuary, the presence of God, and you'll get that feeling back. But some of you who've never had it, a decision, you need to make a decision to follow Christ and give Him your life this weekend. Repent, say you're sorry, verbalize your trust, plunge your past. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone in this room, anyone in any part of the world listening to this sermon, that today would be the day of decision where they would open the window and receive the Son. Let us walk them through this journey out of darkness into light, out of human suffering and depression and anxiety into human flourishing. Because Jesus went under the sword for us, we can live in your presence in Christ. You're listening to Today with Jeff Vines. I hope and pray that this message from Pastor Jeff has motivated you to commit your life to Jesus. If you don't know how to take that step, connect with your pastor, your local church, or you can reach out to the team at this radio station. Pastor Jeff has plenty more to come in this series. In the full presence of God, everything flourishes. Everything will be able to do what it was originally meant to do. So join me for that next time on Today with Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.